Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. Ultimate OE provides safe, unique hunting-based experiences for passionate hunters and outdoorsmen. From hunting stone sheep in the mountains of British Columbia, rutting moose on the gravel bars of the Yukon, to chasing roaring red stags in the highland of Scotland, Ultimate OE's paid overseas experiences are designed for hunters, by hunters, to maximise enjoyment, learning and experience. For more information, it can be found at ultimateoe.co.nz or flick us an email, give us a call, we're always happy to talk through what kind of hunting adventure would be best for you. G'day and welcome to the Educated Hunter podcast. This week I was lucky enough to catch up with Sam Bufel. He was in transit from New Zealand into Canada, heading up north for another guiding season. He is one of the the few, I guess, that does back-to-back seasons and has been doing so for an extended period of time. I believe he said that his this will be his seventh season on the trot in North America, in British Columbia. So he is a, a very experienced guide these days, both on horseback and then also in New Zealand in the high fence and free range form. So one of the guys that has really stuck with it as a career. So very, very knowledgeable. And we sort of dived into a few topics that have had a bit of airtime in the last few episodes, but a very interesting perspective and a perspective that's been built up over you know, a long period of time. So if you're into the nitty gritty and a bit of the politics, we cover... Um, we cover helicopters, we cover guiding and guide training in New Zealand, uh, the need for sort of an industry standard, and sort of the state of, of where we're at the moment. It's quite a political chat, I guess, but I think it's a pretty well-balanced perspective from his behalf. So have a listen, hope you enjoy it, and you're having a cracker wherever you might be. All right, buddy, good to have you here. Yeah. Should probably put a disclaimer in, you were technically the first podcast we ever did. Yeah, it didn't go so well, though. Well, I don't know. I should re-listen to it. I'll tell you one thing, it's long. Yeah. <laughs> a lot longer than any other podcast I've done since or probably will do. Probably because there's a lot of drill mixed in with it. Yeah, and we'd had a few whiskeys. So it was it was probably a, a cornerstone of learning how to do this touch wood, hopefully a little bit better. Yeah. Most of our audience will be <laughs> <laughs> rubbing their eyes at the moment saying, you're not that much better than you used yeah. to be, but we like to think we are. Um, so where we caught you, Vancouver, in transit to what? Whitehorse tonight, and then a bit of running around and down to Watson Lake to fly into camp tomorrow, hopefully. And this will be your number what season in Northern BC? Seven. Seventh season. I think it's seven. I keep forgetting. Ben has to keep reminding me. Yeah, because he was probably a couple behind you. Yeah, two he? behind. Well, so. I can't say I'm not jealous. Um I would love to be getting on a plane tonight and flying up there for a whole season, but unfortunately... You can't be that disappointed about not cutting trail. I like to think that's out of my pay grade these days, but that's <laughs> probably wishful thinking. If I showed up now, I guarantee I'd be cutting trail. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to cut trail? Oh, good. We need a new shitter dug out the back. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, well, that's bloody good. Seventh season. So you're probably... 
shit, you must be. There can't be too many guys left at that outfit that have got more experience than you there now. Only, well, there's Richard been there the same amount of time and Garth. He's probably pushing 20 now. Yeah. 15. He's mid 40 ish, 43, and started when he was 18, so. Yeah. Been there a while. Only, only missed a couple, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Certainly the. And then the ones that have been there for longer are. Just too long <laughs> not that effective on the steep bits anymore let's just say that um well that's bloody good and then previous to that you've been you've just done a whole season in new zealand haven't you yeah so just finished up a pretty long busy se- season from march to start of Ma- yeah start of march to end of june basically um it's been busy but a good one you get about halfway through that season you start counting down to this one though so yeah, start planning or hoping to plan things that you want to do once you get back over here. It's a pretty good punch because I mean, what was the last time I saw you? We did a hunt together in November here in Canada, didn't we? Yep, it was end of November, it mid to been, end of November. Yeah, and then saw you at SCI, so that would have been February. And then you're basically hunting since, haven't you? Yep. Yeah, I got home about the seventh of February. Did some fencing and for a couple of weeks, and then you've yeah, been hunting non-stop whether work or personal since and before I left I was cat hunting in the Kootenays so helping out either on guided hunts or hunting for ourselves so yeah man that's a long season when you stop and think about it I haven't really stopped no so nine months straight by the time you're done with this and that's not counting the season beforehand yeah so I mean the next couple of weeks of cutting trail and getting stuff ready is about the only non-hunting time I have so I mean from your perspective I mean you're obviously full time professional guide slash I guess outfitter we call you now in New Zealand I suppose yeah Um, there's not too many of you that are doing the back to backs these days there's probably maybe three or four of you who do a full New Zealand season what I consider to be a full New Zealand season professional season and then a full professional Canadian season yeah there's you know, there's a few guys who'll dabble in it and do it for two or three years, but there's not too many that have done it as long as you have year in, year out. Yeah, I suppose last year was probably the busier one with picked up some other later season go hunting in November, end of November. Here in Canada. In Canada. A um, couple of hunts there and then helping out with those cat hunts as well. Previous to that, you know, be finished mid-October and have a bit of time. In between the New Zealand one, but yeah, this last 12 months or so has been a busy one of hunting. Tell us about your um, your sort of primary outfit in New Zealand. What do you concentrate on? Who, what kind of hunts are you doing? Um, I mean, we do everything. Uh, we do the high fence side of things, red stags, fallow. We do do a fair amount of that. Um, but we try and do as much as we can on the free range tar and chamois whether it be west coast or east coast we try and do as much of that as we can and who are your clients primarily for that stuff mainly americans through my boss um with having worked over here as well and through other contacts we get a few canadians as well turkey and a few europeans as well swiss scottish we had some guys from czech republic and to finish right. off the season this year, so we get a pretty good range. From our listenership point of view, there's always there's always been a sort of a shroud of, I don't want to say secrecy, but certainly a little bit of a 
a grey area thrown over the whole professional industry in New Zealand when it comes to guiding, particularly on dock land and using helicopters and not using helicopters and high fence and, and what it all means and who does it. And I think as a result of that, there's a lot of, I guess, misconception amongst the average Kiwi hunter when it comes to professional interview and industry. And I think that, you know, this is an opportunity as far as this conversation goes to break down a few of that stuff and, and really talk about, you know, the mechanics of how all that stuff works, the process that outfitters go through and why and the process that you guys go through as outfitters and guides and why and how it all works and, you know, I guess the process and revenue streams that all make sense because it's something I've noticed, I don't know if I might be talking out of my ass, but every year there seems to be more quote-unquote outfits in New Zealand yep. or guiding services. Every other day. Every other day. And then now I'm even starting to see a lot of Americans selling hunts in New Zealand and unfortunately they tend to be lending themselves purely to the the helicopter stuff. That one stuff. of late that was circling around was uh, the prime example. Yeah. Selling just a straight heli hunt straight from the US, flying, fly, fly out, out. Kill a couple of um, things, fly out. Yeah. Who was it? I think Ben from Big Game Hunting shared that on his. Yeah, there's story. a few people did. That I mean, was it's an American. It, yeah, it's. I mean, we do do a few heli hunts. We didn't do one for Tar this year. That's just the way things worked out. We did a few chamois. Um, we try not to, but some situations it has to be, or that's all the client wants to do, and it's you're allowed to do it, so we do it. But yeah, that one was. That rubbed me the wrong way as well. Just, I mean, one for one, it's not a New Zealand company so none of that money's going into New Zealand and the way they advertise it is you know I mean a heli hunt is what it is but you can so I think we should probably make a, a, a pretty defined split between two things a heli hunting to me is either one or two methods is a heli hunt i.e. you get in a helicopter it takes you up to the top of the mountains it drops you off yeah and then you hunt for a few days and then it picks you up that's one way to do it and the other way to do it which tends to get a lot of attention is the AATH stuff, yeah. which is eerily assisted trophy hunting, which involves, it's a lot shorter turnaround. You find the animal in the machine, you get out, you, you shoot, shoot the animal, you get back in the machine and you're done. Yeah. You know, And if everything works down to a T, because you're paying by the minute for the helicopter time, you know, sometimes those hunts can be done in 10 or 15 minutes. Sometimes they take an hour or two, but it's all done and dusted. So that's the AATH stuff, which is is different. And from an ethical point of view, we could talk to a blue in the face about, you know, the ethics that sit behind it. And then, you know, I certainly have quite a few personal opinions on how that type of hunting is not only viewed from within the greater hunting community, from an international point of view, but how that type of hunting, should it get any kind of airtime in the public arena, how that kind of hunting will look and make hunters look from a non-hunting perspective, yeah. is I see it as a massive risk. Um, I understand it, and I understand why people do it. Um, I understand why outfitters do it. And I can certainly see, to a certain point, the draw for a client to want to do it, simply because you can't do it anywhere else in the world. Because yeah. they've shut it down everywhere else. Yeah, we've had clients that have come and done a ground hunt. You know, we've either flown into the west coast and camped and hunted for three, four, five days on foot, uh, or up to a place where we can drive to and do the same thing. And then they come back and they want to do 
a heli hunt, so assist the helicopter hunt because they can. Yeah. Purely for that reason. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's not many people like that, but. And it, I think it's important to note that it, it is relatively fringy. There are some New Zealand outfits that remo- rely primarily on that kind of hunting. There are most of the New Zealand hunters that, you know, like your outfit, do the odd one, you know, when necessity calls for it and or when the client actually wants to do it. <clears throat> but from a New Zealand hunting perspective, like your average New Zealand hunter, like a, there's a lot of fear around it because that's the stuff that's more visible. That's the stuff that gets more airtime. And I mean, from an ethical point of view, depending on where you sit on the spectrum as a hunter, it you know it does genuinely rub people up the wrong way. Yeah. And I understand that. And then thirdly, it's a lot more visible a lot of the time. And when you start getting, like we're talking about this American company, promoting that style of hunting to come to New Zealand, and I'm sure technically, because he's using a helicopter company and all he's doing is brokering the deal, like he's probably not doing anything illegal. It no. just rubs us up the wrong way because it's... Yeah, I mean, they flat out it's... Uh, I mean, I can't remember it came up for me if it was on Facebook or whatever, but it's a, a video made for YouTube or online that starts off in them in a helicopter chasing a tail around the hill and getting out shooting it. And it's advertising the fact that you can go and shoot tar and chamois within an hour you know it's a flat flat rate price yeah not offering you know any red stags or fallow it's just solely well the thing is that like at that point when you, that's all you're selling like you can't really call that a hunt no like there's no and hunting they, element and that. they're calling them i can't remember what the name was but you know they're calling themselves new zealand hunting or yeah it, yeah straight away puts the new zealand hunting image in a bad light yeah, and I think, like I said earlier, if that were to gain traction outside of the hunting, like it gained plenty of traction just within the hunting community, but mm. if that were to gain traction in the you know run-of-the-mill news cycle or even internationally, I understand it. It wouldn't matter who was doing it or why they were doing it. Every single hunter in New Zealand would get tarred with the same brush. Yep. And I think that would cause all kinds of discontent yeah. and upset and I guess that's why everybody gets so wound up about it I mean yeah I had another friend a few weeks ago in one of the tar ballots and uh, you know one of the it's a good good block I've been in there and I never realised but for that last week of the tar ballots on the west coast they actually open it up for the aerial heli hunting really and uh, I mean they had a pretty good sized camp one of those MIA tents yep. set up and where the camp is, it's pretty visible. Yeah, they got Hallie under them. And the friend, he f- filmed the whole thing from camp, the spotting scope, through the spotter. Not that far up the valley. I mean, it's not that long a valley, really, and filmed the whole thing. There. So, I mean, that sort of thing. I mean, they're allowed to be there. They weren't breaking any laws. But being able to do that sort of thing and when other people are there is, you know, it's a bit on the nose. It is a bit on the nose. And, I, you know, there's going to be bad actors in any industry that you're in, right? And some of it is, because there's a lot of moving parts, I mean, whoever that outfitter was and whoever the helicopter company was, like, if you're committing to a certain valley and you get there and there's a camp down the bottom and... Most operators' outfitters are pretty good. good And, you know, the, the outfitters or the helicopter operators, for the most part, will know where the camps or where people generally camp because they're going to be the ones flying people in there. Yeah. private hunters in there so it doesn't take much to look and usually they will bugger off and go somewhere else but not all the time 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean that's frustrating too because I mean that's the kind of story that circulates yeah. really well in a hunting community. And yeah. I mean talking about it on the podcast probably doesn't do it a lot of good. But at the same time, you know that kind of thing doesn't happen. Well, I like to think it doesn't happen that often, no. but when it does happen, everybody hears about it. Yeah. And I, I think it all throws back to something we've harped along about on this podcast a lot, is there's a real lack of a coherent management plan. In this case, we're talking about tar. Yeah. There's a real lack of coherent management you know, that starts with recreational hunters into ballot blocks, into professional guys taking guys on the hill, um, right up to the aerial assisted trophy hunting stuff. And Waro, I guess. Yeah. There's no real clear plan on a management unit basis to follow because everybody's looking after their own end to a certain point. Yeah. And then the glue that's supposed to hold all that together is Doc, who have their own set it, of agendas. Yeah. And So not- from their point of view, the more heli hunting going on for them, the better because it's taken, you know, they more bulls being shot and outfitters uh, for the people that don't realise have to have they have, there's an offset so every bull they shoot for with a client I think it's, you have to shoot three nannies or something so generally the end of the year they whether they have a shooter or they just hire a helicopter company and they go out and they shoot the nannies equivalent to how many bulls I've shot for that season yeah. and that so that comes out of the, the Tarkal quota so it does go towards that as far as I know, I think. Yeah, and I think we're getting closer as we've been through this process to have a few of these systems put into place and Doc have right now a system where we can, like, guys are reporting how many animals are shooting in those management units and, you know, we're moving towards it's not, I don't think, working perfect yeah. yet. Doc have got issues with, um, I guess, proof of harvest. Yep. You know, they're saying, well, you're saying you shot this this many, but how many can you tell? Yep. And then when the shoe's on the other foot, you say, well, Doc, well, you're saying you're going in there to shoot 3,000 animals, but you're not picking any of them up. So how do we know how many you're actually shooting? Like, yep. it rubs both ways. And there's kind of like, there's still a, a distrust to some extent, which comes down to a, there's no clear, concrete plan from either side to say, these are the, this is what we're working together and what that would, we're working towards, sorry. And for that to happen, you know, Doc and every other interested party would have to sit down and say, okay, this is what we're working towards and this is everybody's end of it and this is what we're going. Right now, Doc are moving towards, you know, their pipe dream of wasting every single one of them. If yeah. they could, they would. Yeah. You know, hunters, I think, have still got a long way to come in terms of what is a sustainable number of tar and how many we should have. And there's a huge void of research we just don't have any well, much research. There's been the odd bit of research done, and Curran had a chat with young Finn Ross the other day. It's probably going to be the podcast released before this one. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, obviously he comes from a <clears throat> coming at it from a um, educational point of view or an academic point of view. And he pointed out there are there isn't really a lot of research about what the carrying capacities of these areas actually are and mm. how the ecology and biodiversity is um, affected in different areas. Do we have that information? Like everyone's just guessing. And if you've got your own personal agenda, your guess is going to be swayed yeah, I mean, in a certain direction. Some of the people that are probably getting vocal about the... I mean, a lot of people do know, but some of the people probably haven't been into a lot of the areas where... The, 
those tar numbers are too high. Yeah. I mean, there's a few places we go on the West Coast and, you know, it, you get, it's some of that country that's steep, but if you're somewhere where the tar numbers weren't high, there's always vegetation to hold on to and, you know, you just walk around and you get into some of that country and there's nothing to hold on to because it's chewed out, chewed out completely. Yeah. Um, and it's not ha- hard to see that there is too many tar there. And you also see that on the trophy side of things, like the, there's not enough feed, so you can just look at the growth rings on a on a bull, and then other areas that you know would, would be pretty good. East Coast, any area you shoot a seven year old that's fourteen inch, I mean it's pumping it out because it's got the feed. Yeah. Uh, West Coast, where it, some of those numbers are high, um, or up in some of those Canterbury rivers and valleys, and that and you see a mob of two hundred tar. It's yeah. yeah. Pretty slim picking, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think I don't know what it is, but there's still a, you know, it comes back to the, you know, when the helicopters first went in the air and the culling days that, you know, lots of animals is good. We've always had this mentality, whether yep. it's whatever we're talking about, we want to see as many animals as possible. Yeah. And there needs to be a there's a big shift going from that to saying, okay, don't mind not seeing a mob of thirty tar, but if I see three bulls for a day, or four or five bulls in a day. They're going to be really good quality. Yeah. And like, I guess with your background and, you know, the hunting you do in North America, you sort of learn to understand that. It's a completely different mentality. Like, you're going to have a, a population and you're, you're, you look after your population and your age structure the best you can to get those trophies out at the end. Yeah. And, you know, in New Zealand, we've got that different environment where if we're not actively controlling numbers, then that, that age structure or that population just gets out of control. You just don't get the quality at the at the top end. Yeah, I mean, it's since I've been coming over here, I've definitely seen a change back home. With we'll notice a change mainly through social media with people looking and trying to find older animals. Yeah, I mean that's definitely something I learned coming over here. I mean, obviously some of it's because of regulations and things have to be le- a certain age to be legal. But and a lot of people hunting, say the sheep and that over here, are looking for old animals. I mean, even if it's pruned and not as long if it's old it's it's more of a trophy and there's definitely been a change back home I've seen people you know leaving stags because they've learned learned how to uh, age them better and that's yeah different magazines and you know articles online and yeah there's certainly a swing towards that and I think it's that is positive so back to the the outfitting side of things so few tar and chamois on the west coast yep you obviously that's just knowing you i know for a fact that's probably your favorite type yeah. of hunting that you're doing yeah that's definitely the stuff. happy place over there um, we try and get over there as much as we can obviously over there it's pretty weather dependent we probably had three trips that we wanted to go over there this year with uh, clients that were able willing to hunt that sort of country but we couldn't because the weather was terrible and we got pushed to go east coast but yeah if the weather's good and my boss back there, he's been hunting over there for a long time and knows plenty of different areas. So depending on the client, there's different areas you can go and still get around or hunt the scrub and sit and wait. Yeah. Um, so as long as the weather's good, we'll go there. And then we do flying earlier on, flying chamois trips as well. Um, same sort of thing, flying and set up camp and hunt on foot for two or three days. And yeah. um, on the West Coast, some of the areas you go, you know, you might go to a tar area with the chance of an odd chamois. 
you always got a chance of bumping into one of those and that happened a couple of times this year so it makes for a pretty fun hunt when you can target two animals like that from the same spot yeah so I guess the other um, side of the story and you know that sort of got a little bit distracted with the helicopter stuff but <laughs> the the num the sheer number of I guess it's it's a product of um, there being plenty of hunters in New Zealand um, and plenty of guys that are I guess capable hunters in New Zealand um, and then sort of the rise of social media and um, Facebook and YouTube and all those bits and pieces um, the ability to sort of advertise and essentially start up a quote end quote guiding service overnight really yep. You know, you, there's got to be, I don't know how many of them are. I suppose to a point I'm new at it as well. So I suppose some people could look at it, me at the same way, but I'm working for an outfitter, a friend. Um, so I haven't just gone, didn't come to Canada, guide over here and then go, shit, yeah, I'm an outfitter guide. I go back and start my own business. Well, so There's plenty of those guys, but there's also the guys that, yeah, yeah, and some of those guys coming back after being over here are probably more set up and knowledgeable to be able to do it, whereas I've definitely seen in the last little while certain people that have, the hunters in New Zealand, and some of them haven't been hunting for that long, but good on them, they're getting into it, it's awesome, more hunters are better, but all of a sudden, you know, it's they they want to become a guide. Um, some probably see it as a lavish lifestyle that you live in the dream and it's just <laughs> awesome as you and a lot of them probably think you're going to make a lot of money it is an awesome lifestyle um, it's not necessarily get rich quick scheme um, but some of those guys are setting up or going to set up their own companies when really they don't have any idea about the outfitting industry in New Zealand yeah. And even after myself working over here for a few years and going back and then starting to work for a company in New Zealand, I still had, even after doing a lot of hunting in New Zealand, there's a lot of things I had no idea about. Just the mechanics on how things work within the in the industry and things to do, things not to do. And with the, the training course, if we want to go down that road, that's offered back there. I mean, I haven't done it, the guides course. Um, I probably will at some point, possibly maybe on the point I probably should. But there's people going and doing the course, then thinking they, because they've done the course, they're a guide outfitter. I mean, obviously, you, you do learn a lot in that from the course. But, yeah, yeah it's... Yeah, I'll chime in for you. <laughs> So the, the, what you're talking about is the professional hunting guys in New Zealand. They do a what they call their professional hunting academy, something along those lines. Yeah. And I've sort of known people who've done it, and I know people who have been involved in in running it and and teaching it. And I was around and guiding, sort of showing my age a little bit now, but <clears throat> around it was when I was first starting guiding is when they first started that up that system and you, you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place I believe fully that anyone who calls themselves a hunting guide in New Zealand should have some kind of certification Yeah. right but the trouble with getting a hunting guide certification and this is you know coming from myself and Curran who have been teaching a course to 
you know, prepare guys to hit the ground running when they get here in Canada for 10 years. So, you know, we can't teach you a lot of things that, you know, you're going to learn once you get here in 10 days. Like, it's just physically impossibility for me to teach you to be a fantastic horseman. Yeah. And, you know, the two or three days we have with horses, it's just not possible. What I can do is teach the foundation so you can hit the ground running. And a few key things that we do, you know, plant the seed and allow for the entry into what we offer over here. And then that allows them to almost get their apprenticeship. So wrangling in Canada has always been the apprenticeship to becoming a professional guide. Yeah. So they get a whole season under their belt before they'll even get a look in at doing any kind of guiding. In New Zealand, we don't have anything like that. No. And you've, in terms of becoming a professional guide, there's a there's a spectrum, right? You go to, you want to be a PH in South Africa. There's a theoretical course that you have to go and do, and then you have to basically do three years as a apprentice. Apprentice. It's before you become a certified professional hunting guide, and then you have to have, you get assessed on a, I don't know how long it is, but you get assessed every certain amount of time to make sure that you're keeping up with. Yep your trade so it's more like becoming a builder than it is becoming yeah i mean it'd be like someone at home who's got a skill saw or drill and a drop saw at home and put some shelves up and they go i'm a builder go yeah. build a house do a crappy job it gives builders a bad name yeah exactly so what we see in new zealand is the professional hunting guides association the course that they've set up and the certification they set up it's it's well intended you know i, I understand what they're trying to do they're trying to create a benchmark for hunters or guides in New Zealand. The trouble is, is that it's a four or five day course. And anyone can go do it. And anyone can go and do it. And then once you get it, you do your four or five day course, they give you your certification. I'm sure they or hope they fail some people if they don't meet the grade. But, yeah. you know, after four or five days, you've got the impression now that you're on the list with, you know, guys that are on that same list that have been guide outfitting for 25 years and in New Zealand and around the world and there's no real way to tell the difference no. his name on a bit of paper they've both got an outfitter they're both you know certified and it's put that wee logo on their on their ad and exactly so that although it has value 100% it has value you know and some of the things that they teach particularly around the helicopter safety and all that kind of stuff I think is really important from a health and safety point of view um, but at the same time it's it's kind of hard to call that a um, there's there's no real seal of like skill level there. That's just saying that you know, literally they've got their helicopter put certification. It gives them their dock concession, four drive course, four drive course. They know how to set up a table for a three course meal, which obviously lends directly to the you know the lavish lodges at some of the yep. high fence outfits. Like it's not, you know, there's no real degree of experience there and you can't teach that right so there's no prerequisite coming into it like literally you could come straight out of a you know a cafe in Auckland yeah and do your four or five day professional hunting yep. guides course and assuming that you can string three words together write your name in block capitals and get in and out of a helicopter safe enough they'll give you your certification yeah right so that's an issue along with the fact that it's not compulsory yeah so that's that's something that I mean, that's, a, along with other things, something that I think needs to come into it. 
Well, it does, unless it's compulsory, it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah, and also down the lines of, which is a whole other rabbit hole of, you know, having to be a New Zealand company to outfit there. Yeah. So, but, I mean, that's another whole part of it. But, yeah. I mean, just on the guiding stuff, you know, when I, when they first started it up, the first question is, well, do I have to do it? The answer is no, but you should do it. And then you've got a bunch of guys that have been guide outfitting, you know, for 20 years with no motivation to do it being told they have to sit there with the barista from Auckland and learn this shit yeah. when they really should have been grandfathered in. A lot of those guys should have been grandfathered in, but when that was first set up, there was a few members of the association that tried to use it as leverage to better their own businesses, yeah. which added to the bad taste. And that association that was pushing 15 years ago, they're still struggling to get that taste out of their mouth from the guys that have been in the industry since it was started because it really got off on the wrong foot so I understand it but it's yeah there's a little bit of work that needs to be done and, and what it is I don't think it's real clear what it actually is yeah um, I mean from the back to that point of view of all these people popping up and starting new companies I think some kind of level system like you're talking in Africa or to become a PH would be good like you know you can go do level one mm-hmm. as a guide course and then you have to go and work for a guide out- outfitter for one or two seasons and guide two of each species of animals yourself yeah. before you can then go on to complete the course you could actually be absolutely do that and then you can separate it too like it's very different and as you know you've done both it's very different doing a high fence red stag hunt at a luxury lodge yeah, and learning how to judge those big dollar stags on the hoof, you know, your SCI measuring, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of very specific skill sets involved in that high fenced hunting. Yeah. You know, and looking after that particular type of client and looking after them in that way. Working around a hunt when they're booked in for a certain size and there's a bigger one standing yeah. a few hundred yards <laughs> away. and sales element to it, you yeah. know, all of that kind of stuff. And I think there should be a cert- certification specifically designed for that kind of hunting. But then getting in a helicopter with a client, a pup tent, and five days worth of food and being dropped on the tops on the West Coast is a completely different yep. kettle of fish. Yep. Like, completely different. Yep. Just like I wouldn't expect a guy that's been doing that for 10 years to be able to fly into Canada and do what you're doing next month, which is taking guys on horseback into the mountains to hunt stone sheep. Yep. Like, it's completely different. Yeah. So you can't, and that's part of the reason that they've got an issue, is they're trying to blanket, and when they first set it up and when they wrote that course, they weren't big on the idea of guys doing free-range hunts in New Zealand. So that free-range guys always got pushed to the outer edge and the training itself was you know nowhere near as relevant as it was to if you wanted to be a guide for a high fence outfit because Mm. all the guys who started the association wrote the material and delivered the training were all high fence guys that's changed a little bit now and it is i haven't had a conversation with the upper echelons of these for a while now but you know last time I spoke to them when it was back when I was at Mountain Safety it was certainly moving towards you know being a little bit more even keel but you know there's no real balance but to go back to your point where you should be a New Zealand based company to be able to outfit 100% I agree yeah. and then you could have a system which is similar to here in British Columbia so you have to sit an online course 
to be a guide in British Columbia. Yeah, and pass with a certain mark to be able to pass. So it's it's not rocket science. Anyone could do it. It's open book. You've just got a time limit. So again, if you can string three words together, read English, you can get your guides yeah. course. The difference is, in order to guide, the outfitter still has to sign off on your license. Every year. Every year. Yeah. So what that does is it puts the onus back on the outfitter to say, you are ready to guide yep. based on the fact that you've worked with me for two years and you know the area, you know the horses, and you know what you're doing, or you've come from here, I've got the necessary references, I know what your background is, therefore you can step straight into that role of guide. Yep. Just because you have a guide license here in British Columbia, which is a bit of plastic with your photo on it, doesn't actually give you the right to go and guide. No. You still have to prove to somebody who's your boss that you can do it. Yep. And that can that we plastic card can be taken away from you as well if you don't. Yeah, don't do certain things as I just found out that happened to somebody recently. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some pretty small, simple things. Really? Interesting. Uh, yeah. Can we have that conversation or we yeah. have that um Canadian guy. Yeah. Um won't name any names. Um but happened a couple of times for different reasons one of them pure accident one of them just forgetfulness I suppose of you have to have a front tooth go in with your uh, with your head when it gets CI and when it gets checked by the conservation officers and thing happened twice there was no tooth with sheep go on took his license God's license I don't think it's permanent but so front tooth off bottom jaw? Bottom or? jaw, yeah. It has to be one in, in size, I think. Cool yeah. tooth, and it's DNA age yeah. um, testing. Which yeah. is a big part of their whole process, so yeah. it's fair enough. And I yeah. suspect that they probably said, right, these guys are, need a bit of a yeah. reminder that you know we're actually out watching this stuff, Yeah, which is great. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what you do about the certification stuff, and it, you know, it loops back all the way back to me and Curran had this conversation the other day without you know, a coherent management plan and at any kind of coherent sort of ability to police this stuff, then it's really hard to pr- like stop an American outfit outfitting in New Zealand because there's no one to really blow the whistle on them. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if you saw an article came up online back home there a week or so ago. They caught in Fiordland 270 three or 373 unlicensed guides um that's just for day walks and tramping and yeah alex white shared that yeah yeah and um i mean there's a number of overseas foreign hunting guides in new zealand but there's probably twice as many foreign fishing guides in new zealand yeah which you know how do you police it like i, yeah. I get it i know why it's not being policed yeah. but it, it is Kind of a problem. Like everybody was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe people are operating walking tracks yeah. and fueled." And it's like, "Yeah, well, <laughs> that's one thing. I get it." Yeah, but you know, how do you? Is it illegal? Uh, it was because they're operating a national park and they didn't have dock permits. And right, so if you don't have dock concession or dock permit, that's when it's illegal. Yeah, they were just unlicensed to be working. The but the only reason park. they caught them is because they can shut the road <laughs> at the end of the tunnel and and deal to them. Like it's pretty hard to fly into the west coast and be like hey guys what are you up to yeah because the answer is oh we you know we're from america we're just hunting yeah you know we're just buddies yeah so you'd have to actually prove some kind of 
exchange of commerce. Yeah, and I mean that happens here in British Columbia where it's pretty regulated and that still goes on and it's it hard enough to... On. And when there's a designated designated conservation officer or force, I suppose, it's hard enough to police. Yeah, so in a it's country hard enough when to police, but there is law in place to enforce it when they catch people. Yeah. And me and Corinne were talking about the other day when they do catch somebody... Like brace yourself because oh, yeah. you're now the example that is going to scare people of not doing it for the yep. next 10 years. Yep. You know, there was a case, you know, a few years ago now where they prosecuted a guy 15 years in retrospect because they figured out that the trophy photo that he had in the record book, the mountain in the background didn't quite line up with where he said he shot it. So yep. they flew back into an area spent I don't know how many thousands of dollars checking out mountains until they found the one that matched and he was outside the line and they did him. Yep. And he, you know, got his outfit taken off him, got his sheep taken off him, got he was it was a top ten sheep, got taken out of the record book. Like it was a, yeah, big, a big deal, deal. and everybody knew about it. You know, and it's you know, it wasn't like it was a iconic mountain, it was just a bit of scrub in the background. <laughs> like they did a pretty good job of matching it, you know, fifteen years later. Yeah. But that's that kind of thing. They do it deliberately, and they deliberately make it public, and they deliberately make they make the a point punishment hard. But in New Zealand, we probably won't hear about the two hundred odd tour guides and you know what happened to them. They probably just get on a plane and go home. Yeah, don't do that again. Come back again next year and Come do back the same thing. In a year's time, you know, it's it's very hard to police, and it's like we said the other day. Like it's a moving, like as more people come to New Zealand and it's more accessible and you know when we're talking about hunting specifically people figure out through the social media well it's getting more and more publicised that you can go there hunting yeah and I I still remember when we started Ultimate OE you know there was a lot of the old school outfitters that like literally rang me on my phone and was like you can't do that you can't have just random Kiwis running around talking to clients and telling them what it's really like over here like we can it was like this they were trying to keep it in a box yeah and I, I for under- good reason. Yeah, for good reason, I understand why they were doing it, but I remember saying to them at the time, "I was like, look, you can try and keep a lid on it for as much as you can, and we have the conversation with all the boys that we send over of how the outfitting industry works and why it makes no sense for you to bring a client over here and you know go out and shoot a tar for free or for half price. Like it just makes no sense yep. to anyone. We have that conversation, so we can still control it, but." In terms of Facebook and Instagram and all that kind of stuff, people are going to figure it out, and it's going to be a tide that you know you're not going to be able to no. stem, and that's starting to happen more and more. Yeah, and unfortunately, some of these people that come over with an outfit and then use them to Fly, figure out where to go, figure out where to go, and then come straight back the following year. And yeah, I mean, that, that happened was, with people I know this year. Yeah, um, it was happening when I was guiding. And I mean, a lot of that's controlled by. Doing the high fence hunting. Yeah. I mean, it's not so much of an issue for people coming back, but when you start taking people free range tar hunting. Well, everybody's got a GPS on their bloody phone now. Yeah. Yeah. And for the guys that are already thinking about maybe coming back, they're going to be you know, listening or looking a lot more and about where to go and what to do and come back with their friends the following year. It's, I mean, they do it. But being more than one outfitter that's lost good hunting areas because I've taken people in there and then gone back there the following year and there's there's past clients there with five friends so yeah I mean it was happening a lot with the Aussies when I was yeah guiding like a lot and it's (laughs) 
the end of the day, if the shoe was on the other foot, me and Karen talk about this all the time. Like, if we lived in the US. Oh, yeah. I'd go hunt New Zealand 100%. Yeah. Of course I would. Why wouldn't I? Yeah. Right? But it's the reason we've got an issue with it is because we're from New Zealand and we don't like the idea of people coming to a backyard and doing it for free. But there's no management and no enforcement to no. stop that happening. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You've no. got to deal with and make agreements with outfitters, Waro, Doc, Forest and Bird, it's, like everybody has to be, has to a, be collective. a collective plan and we're not going to get exactly what we want in every case. There yep. has to be give and take at both sides yep. until we agree on what that overarching management plan is then there'll never be any enforcement around how it happens. And there's always going to be bad actors and there's always going to be people that will come and do things for free if they can. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting interesting scenario. Did you see the uh, um, one of our listeners shared it with me a couple of weeks ago? There was a guy, this guy out of Alaska, who's actually selling an online course in how to do a DIY hunt in New Zealand. Really? <laughs> so he, he's selling a course. Yeah, so he he specialized like his business, his whole business is specializing in how to do DIY hunts in Alaska. So he came to New Zealand, hunted with some young yeah, guys, I've seen some stuff. And it was like, "Oh, this is just like Alaska, you can come and do your own hunting." So what I'll do is I'm going to learn how to do it, figure out all the places you can go, make an online course and then advertise it and sell it to Americans. So they buy the package, which has got everything from, you know, where to go, what to pack, what time of year to go, how to hunt tar, you know, what gear you need, all of basically the A to B on how to hunt tar and chamois or red deer in New Zealand. Yep. And he's selling that course. He didn't have a price on it when I looked at it, but I imagine it's, you know, somewhere between 50 and 150 bucks, 200 bucks. I don't know. You go on there, you watch his videos, you read all his gear lists, you do all your thing, you plan your own these are the permits you need to get this is awesome. how you get there this is where you fly into <laughs> this is how you deal with your firearms permit this is how you do with your bow this is this this that and everything it was literally like a blueprint it's what those outfitters were scared about getting out of the box yeah it's happening <laughs> written on a bit of paper and he's advertising it and selling it to people his audience who already do diy hunts in alaska who are more than capable of hunting tail like these guys are in the mountains hunting sheep black tail Moose, all that kind of stuff in Alaska. So that's his audience. <clears throat> He's got a podcast, I think, goes with it. Selling it now to Americans, DIY hunt in New Zealand. So I got that shared with me a lot from our audience because <laughs> people figured it out and they were like, what the is yeah. this shit? Well, technically, he's not doing anything wrong because he's not outfitting. He's just selling yeah. intellectual property. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, a few of our listeners were raising the safety concerns, and it was when that young guy, you know, got killed a couple of months ago. Yeah, well, I mean, that one valley's claimed two lives in the last two years, and there's more and more people that come to try and do that DIY DIY hunting. The more foreigners are going to get into strife. They will on the coast, particularly like I read his course outline. I was like, there's nothing in here about safety. Yeah. There's nothing in here about where to go, why not, what time of year. It might be buried amongst some of the, you know, other titles. But, you know, for me, I was like, look, guys, 
like, we can't do anything about it. Best I can do is reach out to him and say, look, you should probably include some safety yeah. shit in it. And here's some free resources. Yeah, I mean, I see the it time safety time council to have just to put it in front of the guys because genuinely, I don't want guys to die. Yeah, I mean, I see it time time again either over here in Canada with clients talk to them about New Zealand if they haven't been and uh, well when I get to New Zealand and hunting deal with clients and you get them into some of that country and it scares them I mean yeah. a lot of people think New Zealand's small country small mountains and yeah it's a, you end some of it and it's as gnarly as you'll go anywhere I mean especially at this time of year yep. I mean June, July well, it looked like a good time to go tar hunting on paper but it's you got to pick your weather window, yeah. and you got to know where you're going. And there are a few big do's and big don'ts when it comes to yep. when the shit hits the fan. Yep. You know, avalanche stuff is pretty real in a lot of that, co- oh, yeah. that coastal stuff. And then, like, if you end up in a creek and it starts raining, like some of those creeks you can't get out of, and it's going to come up. Well, most fast. of them you can't. No, like, what? you know, on the west coast stuff, walking down the creeks a freaking pipe dream. Yeah, you know, you might feel. Good only, for about only, 15 minutes the only time you the walk waterfall. that I always think that I'll ever walk down one is if I've walked up it because yeah. more often than not you're not going to get down it yeah. and you'll more more than likely go too far and not be able to get back up well that's the thing if you get to a certain point and you can go down stuff that you can't get back up yeah. and vice versa yeah just, whether it's icy or just covered in moss and slime yeah it's pretty real country it really is so I mean if you're yeah, <laughs> if you're an international listener and you think about coming hunting in New Zealand, more power to you. But just keep in mind that that country, you know, I've, I've unfortunately been in the position in my career that um, I spent, you know, a, a couple of years at the Mountain Safety Council, and part of my job was um, looking at and analysing, you know, accidents, injuries, fatalities, particularly around the hunting space which meant that I got to, unfortunately, had to read, you know, stacks of coroner reports of guys that lost their lives mm. hunting. There's a lot more than people realise. There's a lot more than people realise. And I'll tell you what, it's, you know, it's generally, like, particularly that alpine stuff, it's, A, either being on your own, there's a lot of young Kiwi guys and a lot of young foreign guys, well, not necessarily young, but a lot of, Hunters have lost their lives in New Zealand being on their own in the mountains where they probably would have survived if they were with a mate. Mm. And secondly, it's a calamity of bad decisions that pile up on each other that eventually end up in a fatality. So your first bad decision is often not checking the weather forecast. Yep. You know, And your second one is camping somewhere where you shouldn't have camped. And the third one is you know, unlucky, you slip and fall in a river, now you're wet. You know, and you've got those three things that, pile up on each other and then it just takes one more thing and you're toast it's not one thing it'll get you it's the build up and you know I think if you like it would be daunting for me and this is someone that I did it for a living for five years we would turn up in a country and go hunting with a guide right so I've done literally hundreds of those hunts all around the world and I would still find it daunting showing up in a new country that I'd never been in before and going out on the hill and just going hunting. Yeah. Like there are so many different elements that you just don't know or understand. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting one, Sam. I don't know how you solve it. I think just being aware and 
if you see someone who's hell bent on going to New Zealand and doing it on their own, then just push them towards any kind of safety information you can. Yep. You know, here's the Met Service website. Here's the Avalanche website. You know, here's the Mountain Safety's free resources on how not to die when you're hunting. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah there is a lot of information out there for it. I mean, we I had two young Swiss guys that came over and hunted with me last year, and they were going to come and try to do it themselves. Yeah. Um, but they, a friend of theirs was a good friend of my boss's, and he got in touch, and he told them, like, I mean, they do a lot of hunting in Switzerland. and Some good mountains Yeah, there. some good mountains there. They, they, they knew what to do, and they were very capable, but he pointed them in the direction of us um, so they could go and, you know, they knew safety wise where to go and what not to do because it is a bit different yeah i mean i i'd like to think that most helicopter pilots in new zealand have you know they've obviously got a little bit of onus on them you know when it comes to flying people in yeah you know assessing when and where they'll drop somebody off yeah most are pretty good but some but there's always going to be bad actors right there's always going to be bad actors yeah someone wants to go in and they can get in they'll fly them in Without, without thinking about it too much. Yeah, and not all helicopters pilots are hunters either. No, that's one of the big things, for sure. Oh, have I got anything else on my fancy bit of paper here? No. Got anything else you want to talk about? I'm jealous, man, of your season. Like I am and I'm not. I'm at the age now where... You'll be jealous when I start sending you inreach messages and we've got a sheep down. Yeah, that'll make me jealous, for sure. Um, It's kind of tempered with the fact that I am going to get to go up there and go hunting yeah and I actually as my girlfriend pointed out last week I've got a lot of hunting trips lined up this year (laughs) (laughs) put it in perspective a little bit yeah so I mean I can't I can't complain too much but you know the idea of going in and being fully immersed for a whole season it's certainly got a lot of appeal to me yeah but I've got that hunt with dad and Curran that um, undoubtedly be um Entertaining, really entertaining, interesting. Uh, probably put me off guiding for good, actually. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'll be handing in my guide license at the end of it. Thanks very much. I'm done. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so that that makes it a little bit better. But genuinely speaking, I think that uh, getting up there, particularly a couple of good sheep hunts under your belt early on, that's yeah, really appealing to me. Unfortunately, uh, guiding. Whether it be here in Canada or New Zealand, doesn't always allow a lot of time for personal hunting. No, at the peak times anyway. Uh, All right, mate. Good already. chatting. Yep. Better get you back to the airport so you don't miss your plane. Yeah. That's bang on an hour. I'm happy with that. Perfect. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at the Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.